Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. They're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. That's it. You guys don't remember, but in 86, y'all was knee-deep with Lawrence, knee-deep with, with Sims, knee-deep with Bavaro, knee-deep with Joe Mars, knee-deep with Harry Carson. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And I said, now look at you. Otis Jerome Anderson is one of the most unlikely heroes in New York sports history. Better known as OJ, he came to the Giants in a mid-season trade when most assumed he was washed up. He was nearing 30, his production was waning, and the team that had drafted him, the Cardinals, found his replacement. But Bill Parcells had a hunch. His 86 Giants had a championship defense, but struggled to score points early. The offense was centered on the run, so Parcells, the riverboat gambler, agreed to bring in OJ as an insurance policy for star running back Joe Morris. It was a second and a seventh rounder they sent to the Cardinals. For two years, OJ barely saw the field. In fact, if you look at his 1987 stat line, it's kind of depressing. Two carries, six yards. That's the whole year. Despite watching games with Giants fans and Houlihan's down the street from the Meadowlands, I mean, he was on the team. He refused to get bitter and found a role as a goal line guy in 88. Then in 89, the football gods looked down and said, okay, OJ, now's your chance. And boy, did he make the best of it. OJ Anderson retired as the eighth all-time leading rusher in NFL history, but still hasn't gotten the call to the hall. Yet, it's challenged his faith in the voters, but things have a way of coming around for this guy. Here's the story of the trade, the Super Bowl MVP, the uppercut to Mark Kelso, and his Canton resume. It's Otis Anderson's New York accent. My man, OJ, how you doing? Hey, man, I'm just happy to be alive. Just just, just glad I'm upright. <laughs> <laughs> you always have such a good attitude. You're a guy that every time I've had a chance to talk to you, smile on your face, as you said, good attitude, happy to be alive. Is it good right now to be Otis Anderson? Good life? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I started a business with, with Lawrence, and and uh, we're, we're starting to do some things and can't wait for golf season to open up so I can start working on my golf game. And, yeah, it's good to be OJ right now. Who golfs more, you or LT? Oh, by far, LT, because he in Florida, and I'm up here in Jersey. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I feel like LT is on the golf course just about every day, right? No, he's out there every day. Yes, not just. He's every day. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up in Florida, and you end up attending University of Miami, and people will think, well, the glitz and glamour of the U and the Hurricanes. But when you attend Miami, it's well before the glitz and the glamour of the Hurricanes in their glory years of the 80s, 90s, and, and beyond. Before you got there in the 70s and late 60s, 
they were lucky to, to be a, a winning team, an above 500 team. It was before all the championships. What drew you to play for the Canes in the, in the 70s when you went there? Well, you know, Miami was an independent school, and it played against all the major universities. And the exposure that you will be getting playing against all of those independent, uh, you know, playing against major universities, I don't have to go to Alabama or Auburn or Ohio State or Oklahoma to get exposure because those teams play major teams. I can go to Miami, and we played all those top teams like that. If you look back at at my uh, freshman year, we played we played uh, Oklahoma, which was number two in the country. We played Notre Dame. We played uh, Nebraska. We played Navy. We played Colorado. Uh, we played University of Houston. Going to Miami, it gave you exposure. All you had to do is just try to capitalize on it and, you know, and, and try to do some positive. So, in fact, going to Miami, the exposure came from the big teams that you played. Not because you played at the U, because you guys weren't really even playing in bowl games. Your your four years there, you didn't play in the postseason, did you? No, we were everyone's homecoming. I never knew that. It was a, <laughs> it was amazing that I mean the first away game we had, it was homecoming. I'm like, dude, how can we beat somebody homecoming? But <laughs> back in the day, that's what we were. The teams knew that on their schedule, if they had Miami, they was assured that they were going to win that game. And if you don't remember, we was two and eight, two and eight, three and eight, and the last year was six and five. So, so yeah, yeah, we was there one homecoming, and the two teams that we beat, they wish they didn't have us at their homecoming because they ain't win another. Probably they win another game after we beat them. <laughs> the year after you depart is when Howard Stellenberger takes over. Ultimately, he helps rise Miami to prominence. And in 1983, they win the national championship game. That's only four years after you left. Was it shocking to you to see the rise of the U after you were gone? Well, people don't remember, but Lou Saban was the man who really started the transition. My senior year, he brought in the class of Jim Kelly, uh, Mark Rick, Mark Rush, a guy named Lester Williams, uh, or Jim Swain, Malcolm Simmons, uh, just a nucleus of good players that eventually, if you know, Kelly Kelly didn't win anything either, but as soon as Kelly left, they started winning. But he brought in that class, and, and Howard just capitalized on it because they were freshmen, and I was a senior, and Howard checked my eligibility, had none, so I was going to the pro, and that that year, Miami ended up going to the Peach Bowl. I had a chance at Miami to be uh, a runner for Super Bowl teams. Uh, that year, the Steelers and the Cowboys were playing in Super Bowl and Orange Bowl. And I had the chance to pick up their family members from the airport. And when I went to the hotel and saw how big those guys were, I called my mom and told my mom that uh, I don't see it happening. I just didn't see my size playing against Elsie Green with Joe Green, Dwight. Uh, White, uh, uh, Lambert, and 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 Lamb, and and uh, Mel Blunt, and Dunnishell. It, it just was impossible. I remember seeing those guys, and it just it just mesmerized me to be how big they were, and I just I just felt that I didn't have a chance. Wow! So you had such a standout senior year at Miami. You were the first player in school history to have over a thousand yards. You broke George Foreman's career rushing record at the U. 
and yet you didn't really feel like you could play. You end up getting drafted in the top 10 that year, and the team right before you get selected number eight by the Cardinals is, yes, the New York Giants who select quarterback Phil Sims. You thought that you might be going to New York, didn't you? I did. Ray Perkins flew into Miami on Friday, took me out to dinner, told me that they was picking seventh in the first round, and they were going to pick me. He got an easel from the restaurant, wrote some plates up, showed me some things. He said, we got you. Don't even worry about it. And then I, I came home on, on Saturday. I called my agent, asked my agent, can I tell the first six teams that don't think about drafting me? Because I know Dorsett did something like that, and it worked <laughs> for him. And uh, I said, I tell the first six teams not to draft me and that uh, I wouldn't play for him. And he said, sure. And uh, I put a little statement out. And then that Sunday, the uh, Cardinals called me up and said, hey, we'll pick an eighth in the first round. And, you know, we want to know what you, you know, like being a Cardinal. And I told, I, I told, I think it was Larry Wilson, player personnel. I said, you know what? I would love to play for the Cardinals, but I doubt if that's going to happen. I'm going to be a giant. And he said, but what if? I said, well, then then what if? You know, I said, but I'm, I'm going to be a, be a giant. So I was so confident because of, Ray Perkins, the head coach, telling me that he was going to draft me. Wow. And then they went with Phil Simms, and so the card mm -hmm. slipped to them at number eight, and it works out immediately. You have an amazing season right off the bat, 79, 1,600 yards. You're one of the best running backs of the NFL, huge rookie of the year statistics. And from there, off to the races, you didn't think you'd be able to play in the NFL, and here you are as one of the best running backs right away leading the league. How surprised were you? I, I was because it it you know the speed of the game is such a big difference from college to to pros and and that's probably the reason why because when I got to the Cardinals and we did uh, mini camp just the reaction of some of the linebackers in the corners and stuff and I was like dang and I would run a, a toss sweep and think I had the corner made and there goes the linebacker coming in the angle and cut me off I'm like so you know it was an adjustment but once I figured it out. Once I figured out the speed of the game, I was off to the races. But it, it was a great, it was a big transition. You had to just learn that part of the game. Well, it didn't seem like it took you very long to do so. So you're, you know, you're you're putting up really massive numbers. And the Cardinals obviously no longer exist in St. Louis as a football team. They moved at the end of the 80s. But how were those years to play in front of the St. Louis fans? Did you feel like it was a good football town and they appreciated you guys? Well, you know, St. Louis has always been a, a town with two stars, two major stars, hockey and baseball. We was just the unsung uh, hero or we were the, the uh, adopted son, put it that way, because there's a time when we went into Chicago to play the Bears and we was in the elevator with some fans and they looked at us and talking about, you know, they said, they said, boy, the Chicago clubs, go, the Chicago Cubs should have a field day against you, big old guys, because I can't see y'all. We like dog. We play football. We don't play baseball. So even fans were confused when they saw us, because you know we had the same name as as St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. It was just called St. Louis Cardinals baseball, St. Louis Cardinals football. We both had the red bird, so uh, it you know it, our identity was already in jeopardy uh, just because of uh, we were so so much like the uh, baseball team and. And, you know, hey, they won championships, so who are, who are we? Your success on the field 
is not mirrored by wins. In your first six seasons, you have five 1,000-yard campaigns. The only season you did it was the strike-shortened year of 82. If they play the full season, you probably have another 1,000 yards right there. So you're trucking along, but you guys only make the postseason once. You have a couple of losing seasons, and you don't win a playoff game. Does the losing start wearing on you by the time that you're there, four, five, six years? No, because we knew we weren't ready. We knew we were building something. Uh, I, I tell you what, what, what really hurt us was in 85, we had really had got the team where we needed. We had Al Bubba Baker anchoring one end, Curtis Gray the other end. We had Rush Brown. We had David Galloway. Um, we had Leonard Smith, strong safety, Lonnie Young, free safety, Cedric Mike, corner, Lionel Washington, corner. Linebackers were Charlotte Baker. Uh, Kevin Fabron and EJ Jr. in the middle. We have finally put a defense together, consist of players who have come from winning program. And then we had offensively, we had me on one side, Roy on the other side. We had Doug Marsh tight end. We had Louis Sharp, Tootie Robinson defense, I mean offensive tackles. We had Joe Bostic as a guard. We had uh, Leonard, uh, Lance Smith as another guard. We had Terry Steve as a guard. So we had put, and we had Lomax quarterbacking. We had Stump Mitchell. We had Randy, uh, Earl Farrell, Randy Love, and uh, those and, and Willa Harris. Those were our running backs. So we had the team to compete. Now in in eighty in eighty four, we 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 missed a field goal that would have gave us the title against Washington. Had we made a field goal, we would have won the division. And then in Green Bay, we was we was kicking Green Bay butt. And I go down the I think the first or second quarter, and then Pat Tilly go down, and that takes away our offense. But before that, we was running the ball, we was moving up and down the field. We was we was we was giving it to Green Bay. But uh, you know, I went down, Pat went down, and some more players went down, and. And then in 85, I got hurt, missed nine games, stomp came in. And uh, Bidwell said that was enough. Said we were back to where we started when Coach Hannaford took over, and he thought we was going in reverse. But we we just – he just – if he would have gave us 86 with Jim Hannaford, we would have turned the corner. Hmm. That Green Bay game you're talking about was the playoffs first round in 1982. Yep. You guys lose that game, okay. and then stomp – was Stump Mitchell, who, when you got injured, came in and, and performed really well, and he was a good running back. It's kind of amazing mm -hmm. to me, spoken to a lot of players of your era, not many can recite most of the roster of their team from 40 years ago <laughs> and recite the schedule of their freshman year in college. Your mind is super sharp. You say, like, there's a lot of wear and tear in football, but you, you must feel fortunate that your your mind is still as, as sharp and your memory is still as good as it is. Long-term memory is good. Short-term sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you could tell me something uh, like now and ask me that question again three minutes from now. I would say, "What question you asked?" Yeah, but um, I, I was blessed. I was blessed. You know, I, I'm like all all players play the game. You know, I, I had concussions and things like that. But uh, you know, some person, some people are worse than others. But when you play a game and you play the position I played for as long as I played 14 seasons, uh, you're not going to walk out of there unscathed, that's for sure. We come to the 1986 season, and as you said, Bidwell wanted to do some different things. I think 
for Giants fans, the sense was in 86 that you were disgruntled. You didn't want to be in St. Louis anymore. How did you feel about getting traded to the Giants that year? Well, you know, we just had hired Gene Stalling. And uh, Stalin and I, we didn't see eye to eye from the get-go. And, you know, when you have a new coach and you have an Asian player, who are you going to get rid of? A player. So um, when when they did trade me, Bitwell came by and told me it wasn't personal, it was just business. And he shook my hand. And, you know, off I went to New, new York. So there was no... There was no ill will. You didn't feel any resentment about getting traded that day. Uh, I did. I mean, I, I I I was blown away. I didn't think that was possible. We had played the the Giants that Sunday, and Jim Burke had mentioned to me on the field after the game, "How would you like to be a Giant?" And I was, you know, I was adamant to him about there's no way that the Cardinals would trade me. I'm their franchise player, and not only that, trade me into the same division. That was never heard of, and. Mm. Why would you do that? And then you had to play us another, you know, had to play them again. So I didn't think that was possible. I, I didn't think that uh, Gene Stalin didn't want me as, as, as that bad, that he wanted to get rid of me. And, 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 and the sad part about it was the Giants wasn't looking for me. They were looking for a kickoff return and punt returner, and they wanted Stump Mitchell. And wow. Coach Stalin Say no, no, no. What if we give you O.J. Anderson? And and from what I understand, Coach Parcells like, you mean you you giving up O.J.? And they say, yeah, we can make a deal for him. And he, from what I heard, he went and talked to a George Martin, Harry Carson, and Lawrence Taylor, and Jim Burke. He asked Jim Burke, because Jim Burke and I went to Miami for uh, for two years. And he asked Jim Bird about my character. And Jim Bird said, you know how to get a better player who 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 compete every down, don't drink, don't smoke, don't swear. Uh, you, you get a you get a a player that 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 loves to win. And from what George Martin and Harry and Lawrence said, they told Parcell, please, if you can get this son of a gun, you get him. Because we're tired of chasing him and hitting him, and he would be a big asset to us. And and that was part of the reason why they they uh, they ended up making that deal. I mean, it was for second round draft pick and a fourth round draft pick, and uh, the Cardinals ended up trading both picks. For, I don't know for whatever, but uh, it don't surprise me what they did back then. So, wow, yeah. that's such a great background on that trade. It ends up being one of the great trades in Giants franchise history. But it's got to be a little. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. But it's got to be bittersweet for you because even though the Giants are a great team, they're a runaway freight train in 86, they end up being the one seed, 14-2, and two. Joe Morris is having a career year. So you're not going to see the field. You're part of a Super Bowl potential team, but you know that you're not getting many carries. So was it satisfying or was it tough to go to a place where you weren't going to play much? Well, you know, Parcel set me down. He told me, he said, listen, you're my insurance policy. He said, I want you to learn offense. Uh, the fullback position, because we need some help in that position. Maurice is a great blocker, but we want to be able to put you and Joe Morris on the team on the field at the same time and let a team guess on who's going to get the football. So that was his plan for me coming there. And, uh, you know, I was a great motivator for Joe. Uh, you know, Joe knowing that, you know, knowing who I was and it, 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 one of the best years he ever had, he went over 1,500 yards. And you're right. He didn't get much much playing time to me at all. 
but that was fine. I, I motivated him. It motivated the team. It gave us what we all wanted was the opportunity to, to win a championship. And you know what? Um, I, I'm, I'm happy with that. You were 29 years old. You go to the 86 Giants. Giants end up ripping through the NFC Championship game, blowing out the Niners divisional round, blowing out the Redskins in the NFC Championship game, going to Pasadena for the Super Bowl. And it's another blowout in the second half, although it's a little nip and tuck in the first half. But you guys end up pulling ahead of the second half, and they put you in. Parcells put you in, and there's a, a late touchdown. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, the call on that is here's kind of a ceremonial touchdown for, for Odin mm -hmm. near the end of his career. Who knows how much longer he'll play. And, of course, as fate would have it, you're going to play well longer, many more years, and have another huge second chapter of your career. When you score that touchdown, are you thinking – oh, this is a nice cap on my career? Or are you thinking, no, I'm not done yet? Well, I, I didn't I didn't think I was done. I felt exactly what you said. I felt it was a, it was a great appreciation for the seven years in St. Louis that I was committed to and, and the player that I was. Like you said, I was one of the elite running backs the first seven years of my career uh, as a Cardinal. So, it, you know, it, it works. It was, it was great for me to, to, to have that feeling, you know, uh, but it it was it was like you know, if in case Bill said in case you never get here again, here's an opportunity for you, uh, you know, and I understood exactly what he was saying, and I was able to get in the end zone. But what what people don't realize is that '88, the Giants actually, and Parcells sat and told me that listen. At the 87 season, he said, we don't bring back Asian running backs. We don't bring back running backs to make a lot of money. If you come back in 88, you have to come back with a significant pay cut. And hopefully you make the team. I was not invited to the offseason workout program in 88. Wow. I was not invited because they, they, they invited certain players and they sent out the list. He told me I didn't have to come. I know what that spelled. I was like, if I don't come back up there, out of sight, out of mind, there's no way he's going to allow me in training camp to even have a chance. So I packed my bags. I went up to, to New Jersey. And the first day of off-season workout program, I remember showing up. I went to the to the reception to be let in. And the reception went through the list and said, you're not on the list. I cannot let you down. I have to first get some clearance. Wow. And... I had to call Johnny Parker, who was the strength and conditioning coach. He had to get permission for Parcells. Johnny Parker called Parcells and told Parcells that I was upstairs wanting to come to the offseason workout program. And Bill Parcells said um, during the offseason, if you was lived out of state and flew in, they gave you a stipend a little more than they gave the in-state in players. And being out of state, I was thought I was going to get a stipend. Bill said he can come, but we're not paying him. So my whole first half of off-season workout program, I was not given a stipend. And uh, he did allow me to, to work out. I was given a program like all the other running backs. And I just tried to become a mentor. You know, and I was the last man on the depth chart. I was the last man on the depth chart. And I was making less than 
every one of the players that I named, uh, that I named, and before I went there, I was making more than every person that I was named, and they cut me all the way back. I was hurt. I would just, you know, but I figured it wasn't about the money. If you love the game, you you just go play it because like, ain't no other job out there in the world gonna give you the opportunity that you're gonna get playing football. So I took the pay cut. I went up there on my own. I worked my butt off. And uh, in 88, it was a toss-up between me and Tony Gabbard. And I believe George Adam got hurt, and they was able to keep me and Tony. Midway during the season, we had trouble with short yardage and goal line. And the late Ron Earhart said to Parcells, we got to figure out how we can do something with this short yardage. And Bill said, what we need to do, we need to find a short yardage running back and a short yardage uh, touchdown guy. Ron Earhart said, we got OJ. He's six foot two. He's 220-some pounds. Bill said, yeah, he can fall two yards. If he can't do that, we don't need him. So <laughs> we're, we're going to try him. So they they brought me in for short yardage and goal line, and that's why I started making my name. It was, it was, it was crazy because – Whenever I went on the field, everybody knew I was getting the ball. Everybody knew that it was third and either one or two or three yards. And Bill said to me, if you can't get me one, two or three yards, I don't need you. So I will, you, will, you will be put on the first plane back to St. Louis if I can't count on you to get short yardage or goal line when I put you in the game. So you talking about threat and peer pressure? I had incentive. My incentive was to make sure that I got them first down. I didn't care what it took. I, that's all I did. And everybody kept saying, Otis, my man. Everybody would say when I came in the game, give it to Otis, my man. Otis, my man. So people started chanting that. And the defense would shift when they saw me because they knew the formation. They knew where I was going. And Bill, I said to Bill many times, Bill, can we switch? And go opposite because everybody he said, I don't care. You need to make the first down. I don't care. They know that so they, now you know. So make it happen. So so uh in 88, that's what I did. And I did so well in 88 that in 89, they invited me back. They wanted me. They sent me all the information. They brought me back. And and thank God that they did, because in 89, Joe Mars get hurt, and then I become the starter. And I make comeback player of the year, go over a thousand yards and everything is glory. They was able to increase my pay. So, uh, you know, I, God is good. <laughs> Man, that's such an incredible story. In 88, yeah. you only get 65 carries that year, but you score eight touchdowns. There's only 200 yeah. yards rushing, but you score eight touchdowns. So you become one of the great goal line backs in the game. It sounds like it might've been complicated how you felt about Bill Parcells because in 86, you're only there for half a season, and he feels strongly enough of a bond to you that he wants to reward you in the Super Bowl with a touchdown carry. But right. short, shortly thereafter, you're not even getting the extra stipend to work out for the team. You're not even allowed on the security clearance list. So do you have kind of conflicting emotions at that time about your loyalty to Bill? Well, you know, at that time, I didn't really know Bill. So it, it did, you know, um, I mean... And I didn't know him in order to really have an opinion other than, you know, playing against him. And he seemed to be a good coach. Um, I learned quickly, you know, um, how he functioned and how he thinks. And um, I became one of his guys. 
I came one of these guys because I worked hard. I didn't complain. I, I took my role and I ran with it. And that's what Bill wanted. He wanted somebody that understood what he needed, you know, to become one of his guys. And he would tell you right now, I'm one of his guys. Lawrence, one of his guys. George Martin, one of his guys. Sims. So to be deemed that honor, it meant that I did everything right, even though he and I may have some some different opinions about some things were definitely in 80s in 87 when we had the the, the strike year we came back and and uh you know i used to go to um uh, hoolahans and secaucus and watch the giants play football with fans and a lot of people didn't know me but they you know they heard of me uh so you know i was a fan amongst fans and nobody knew that i was still on the giant roster because i wouldn't get into playing time i just practiced and you know what they say eat warm up and ride the bench <laughs> so we, yeah so i was one of those players that and uh you know i i understood i i i i remember when a lot of players that that was a cardinal and i was playing and they was on the bench and i always wondered how their attitude was and you know how do you stay committed when you know you're not going to play and I found out if you love the game, then you can be committed. And I just worked my butt off in practice. I made sure that I did all the scout team. And when I did scout team, I wanted to go against the number one defense because it gave me a chance to stay sharp. And I think that's what helped me so much in in 89 and in, in 90 when, you know, when I became a starter. I was still... When I was a starter in 89, I still was doing all of a uh, uh, scout team. Parcells had literally come and tell my position coach, can you take him out? Hell, he got to play Sunday, and he old, so he don't need to be doing all these <laughs> scout team plays. He said, you got Lewis Tillman, you got Dave Mega, let them do it. You got you got uh, Lee Rousson, let them do it. But I wanted to do it because it, it, it allowed me to stay sharp and plus, I played against them all the time when I was in St. Louis. So to me, it was like St. Louis playing against the Giants. And that's how I took it. Even though I had to back up guys on defense, I mean, on offense, playing against the starters, we worked together. And that was another catch that made me and me and Hostella work so well in Super Bowl 25 because we practiced scout team together all the time. Hmm. Wow. How about that? In 89, yep. you have, as you said, comeback player of the year type season. Joe Morris breaks his foot. You are now the primary workhorse carrier, ball carrier. You guys win the division at 12-4, and four, get into the playoffs, and there's the Flipper Anderson game. Phil Sims once told me that was the most difficult loss of his career because he thought that team, the 89 team, was good enough to win the Super Bowl. How heartbreaking was the Flipper Anderson game? It, it was because I had made a prediction when I was in Miami. And when I came out, um, I just figured because if I got to a pro team that had great offensive players and, and a great line, that if I played in the Super Bowl and it was in the state of Florida, I would win MVP. I was hurt. I had 360-some carries with two fumbles. The, the, I set a, a, a NFL record of carries and fumbles that year. Um, I was devastated. I, I I came back in the locker room. I was literally in tears pretty much. 
And I remember sitting on my stool, my hand in my face and just rocking back and forth. And I was like, Maurice, you know, I had a prediction and this was the only chance and the only time that this prediction could come true. And he said, what was that? I said, when I came out of University of Miami, I said, if I played in the Super Bowl and was in the state of Florida and I was the feature running back, I went MVP. I told my roommate, Kenny Johnson. I told my roommate, Gene Coleman. I told my roommate, Herb Jackson. I told all of them that when I was in, in, in the, uh, when I was coming out of college. And when Maurice told me that the Super Bowl the following year in 90 was going to be in Tampa, Florida, I told Maurice, and you can call him up and he'll vouch for me. I said, we are going. So that whole 90 season, in my head, not thinking about me going to the Super Bowl and me fulfilling my dream because we had drafted Rodney Hampton in 90 and he had become the starter and I was his backup. And uh, I didn't see for me ever playing. I just saw me doing that. I didn't see us winning and going to the Super Bowl, even though we were 10 and I think 10 and one or 10 and two early on. And then Sims get hurt and then Rodney go down in the playoff and they throw me in there and we win against Chicago. And then we go out to uh, San Fran and we, we kick all these field goals. And I remember the last field goal being kicked. I was on the sideline and Mark Ingram was, was holding my hand and told my juice, you think we're going to make it? We think we're going to make it? I said, we're going to make it because it's my destiny. He said, what do you mean? I said, I predicted that if we play the Super Bowl in the state of Florida and I'm the feature running back, I'm going to win MVP. So we're going to make this because I got to go to Florida and fulfill my dream. So when, 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 when we made that field goal, he came over, he said, you said it. You said we were going to win. And sure enough, and uh, I know I'm jumping ahead of you, but I got to tell you what I can think of it. I I, I told Lewis Tillman uh, Saturday night after our team meeting, we were, we were talking about the Super Bowl. We were already there. I told Lewis Tillman that I was going to win MVP. And he said, why? And I said, well, somebody got to win it, first of all. And second of all, <laughs> and second of all, this is my prediction. I predicted in Super Bowl that if I was a feature running back and the Super Bowl was in the state of Florida, I was going to win MVP. And here we are in Tampa. So so when it happened, Lewis Tim was the first guy that greeted me when I came in the locker room. He jumped up on me. He said, Daddy, you said it, Daddy, and you did it. You said it, and you did it. So now we can backtrack to everything else you want to get to. But yeah, I had to get out why I, I had it going. I wasn't going to stop you. I love that story. You know, in yeah. 1990, as you said, you guys are 10 and 1. Looks like a collision course with the San Francisco 49ers again. You guys had always played them very, very well in the playoffs. Missed a chance in 89. They win the Super Bowl. 90 comes. You guys have that clash, both 10 and 1, Monday night football. That's the classic Sims and Ronnie Lott are barking at one another after the game. Mm -hmm. A seven to three, the Niners survived it. But you know, again, you can play with the Niners. You guys know you're good enough to beat the Niners. But late in the season, in December, you guys are getting to the playoffs, and down goes Phil Sims, injured for the rest of the year. He's on crutches against the Buffalo yep. Bills of all teams. He gets injured. At that point, it's unknown Jeff Hostetler. Do you guys feel like your Super Bowl chances are over when Sims goes down? 
No, we, we, we felt Jeff brought a different flavor to the team because he was a scrambler. He was a guy that that would, you know, if he didn't like it, he would take off and run. And and it caught a lot of teams off guard, you know. Um, I, I think that would made him u- unique because Jeff, believe it or not, Jeff played every position on offense and every position on defense, I mean, on special team. He was the gunner. He was the uh, the the uh, punt protection guy. He was on field goal. He was a holder. He did everything. He was an all-purpose guy. And again, he and I, we spent a lot of time together running scout team plays. So I I I knew that we could keep going. And I knew Jeff just needed a chance because, you know, what people don't realize is that Jeff and Bill had a big, big stink. And Jeff wanted to be traded. And Bill almost gave him his wish. And and behold, Sims get hurt. But prior to that, Jeff wanted out because he felt he wasn't being utilized. And, you know, and he felt he could do more. But how can you do more when you got Sims playing as well as he's playing? And it just wasn't his time. But he sure took advantage of it when when Phil got hurt. Boy, he came in and. Hostella is is our quarterback, and we look promising with Rodney running the ball. Oh yeah, Haas is an interesting guy. I had a chance to talk to him a couple of months ago, and he always felt overlooked. As you said, him and yep. Bill not get along. He never considered himself a Parcells guy. I don't think Parcells is ever warm or, you know, inviting to him. And so he he felt as an afterthought. He gets this chance, and. I don't want to say he was bitter because I don't want to put words in his mouth, but was he at times a difficult guy to read? You know what? It, it, when you when you play behind somebody who who's a pretty darn good quarterback, you know, and and Sims had the team, you know, ever since he came in as the as the leader, and you know, and uh, you know, our backup is hard to steal the team, you know, unless something catastrophic happened, which it did. But it's hard when when your quarterback is that stud guy back there who's been there before and won championship. And so, you know, um, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to, 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 to take that away from Sims, but Hostetler was a, was a darn good quarterback. He just was in the wrong place and could never showcase his true talent until that injury took, uh, took Sim and, and he showed everybody not only is he a good quarterback, but he's a strong-minded quarterback that can play through adversity. That's a really good way to put it. And the, all those field goals you talk about are the NFC Championship game. Matt Barr yep. comes in and drills five field goals, including one. As time expires, as you guys knock off the 49ers in one of the great playoff games, certainly of the era, I think, ever, and you stop the three-peat, how sweet was that victory to know you went to Candlestick and you beat the 49ers and you knock out Joe Montana. I mean, to me, that has to be one of the most emotional victories of any of your teammates and your careers. How did that feel? Well, it was a great feeling, but what was unique about that was the week of that practice, we come in on Thursday and after practice, Bill Parcells, sat down with us in a team meeting. He said, man, he said, we can 
pack for the weekend or a wicked pack for the week? He said, I'm bringing a big suitcase because I'm packing for the week. We all went crazy because what he was basically saying to us is, you beat the 49ers, you go straight to the Super Bowl because there was no week in between. Right. And we went crazy because he had the mindset to challenge us that way. The next day, that Friday, because we left that Friday uh, after practice, man, we came in there with suitcases on top of suitcases. So <laughs> we were not coming back to New Jersey. We was going to Tampa. And that's what I mean by a coach who understands his players and know how to motivate. He he really he really got us to believe that. And it was a great victory, more sweet than anything else, because they were so sure that they were going to win. They had sent all the equipment to Tampa. We get there early in the morning, and the people at, at the at the window didn't know we were coming because the group that was there, the night crew, they saw the game as Tampa was, I mean, as San Fran was in control. So they all fell asleep on the East Coast. And the morning crew came in, had no idea that we beat them. So when we showed up, they were like, well, who are you guys? We said, we're the we New York Giants. They said, no, we waiting on the San Francisco 49ers. And Bill said, they effing ain't coming. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I never heard of that story. That's amazing. Yeah, there was yeah. no there was no week in between that year randomly. No. And so no. you guys only had a week to head to Tampa and prepare for, for that game. So you guys win in yeah. San Francisco and fly directly to Tampa Bay for Super Bowl 25 to prepare for the Bills. Now, you guys are all veterans. A number of you had played in 86 to win a Super Bowl. There, there's a lot of pride on the 1990 Giants team. And yet, the Buffalo Bills are the favorites. The Bills have raced through the AFC. They're glitzy. They're glamorous. High-powered offense. The K-Gun, Thurman Thomas, Andre Reid, Jim Kelly. So, is there a... Is there a sense in your locker room like, hey, man, who are these guys? They're the favorites? I mean, that, that couldn't have sit well with a very proud Giants team in 1990. No, but I tell you what was unique was when we played Buffalo at home and they beat us and Hosteller was a quarterback that never seen the light. I was an old running back, and there's no way that my, me and Hosteller, two players who was uh, not even thought of, can beat their high-powered offense and play against their, their defense. But what, what they failed to understand was they didn't know a lot about us. And they just looked at how can they beat us with backup quarterback and a backup old running back that's 32 years old. It's first thing impossible. So they were not only cocky, there was more than that. But when we lost against them, Parcel said to us after the game in the locker room, he said, be careful of what you say, because you may meet these guys again. You have the game of your life. It is a 12-3 Bills lead, and it's like, uh-oh, Giants are in trouble. And there are two incredible, clock-eating, grinded-out, physical drives. You go down the field, score a touchdown, 12-10 before the half. Huge, huge drive. And then you come out of the break, you go down the field, score another touchdown. Now you've taken the lead. You are the centerpiece of both of those drives. Parcells says we're not giving the football back. Time of possession of the game, you guys dominate 
40 minutes you held the football, they held it for less than 20. On those two drives, how motivated, how empowered, how energized are you? Because you are you are the crucial part of those two touchdown drives that flipped the script in the Super Bowl. That Saturday, after we got through with our team meeting, Parcells kept me back, him and Ron Earhart, and they sat me down in the room. They said, listen, this is our game plan. We want to control the clock. We cannot give Buffalo many touches. We can't stop them. But if we can play keep away, that will put them in hurry-up mode, and maybe they don't execute as well as they should. He said, I want to run you 20 to 30 times. It's going to be hot. I know if you need a blow, I got Megan to bring you in, bring him in. I can bring Lewis in. He said, but I need to know, can you do it? I said, Bill, I can do it. Just give me an opportunity. And he said, and Ron said, okay, let's go over the game plan. What plays do you want to run? I said, keep me between the tackles. Don't let me go outside. It takes a lot out of me. And Bill said, we got to go outside once or twice just to trick them because they'll pile everybody in. And if you watch that Super Bowl, it's two plays that I went outside, one down by the goal line, and then the one that I turned the corner and hit Mark Kessel. Other than that, all of my plays were, the, I had 24 carries, 22 of those carries was inside, and they were two yard, three yard, four yard, three yard, two yard. So the goal was to do exactly that, is to make them have impatience and make them play hurry up football because they never knew when they get the ball back again. We took it on ourselves and said, it's going to be a ugly game. It's going to be a boring game. Fans going to hate it. <laughs> they probably going to change the way they play football after we do this <laughs> because they don't want any other Super Bowl to be this boring before in their life. And sure enough, we did it that way and we won it. It was incredible. Let me ask you about that Kelso play. I never mm -hmm. seen this before in my life before it. Never saw it in my life after it. You're turning up field. Here's Mark Kelso, safety of the, of the Bills. You wind up and yes, swing an undercut, yes, and you get him almost a club fist underneath the chin to Kelso. Had you ever used that play before? It's not a stiff arm. It's like an under. It's a windmill undercut, and it stuns him. Did you think about that as you're making the play, as you're making the run? Let me tell you, when, when I was in Miami, when I was in high school, there was a running back by the name of Benny Malone that played at Miami. Go back and look at Benny Malone. That's how he ran. He ran with that form. He was winding up and he was floored. And I started copying him when I was a senior in high school. When I got to Miami, I did it a lot in Miami. And when I became a senior, my my players who came in with me as a freshman, they used to always tell me, if you wind up and hit me like that, we're going to fight. We're going to fight. <laughs> My first year into the league, I was doing that. And I remember uh, my defensive coordinator coach, Coach Bettis, pulled me to the side my rookie season. 
He said, let me tell you something. The way you're using your arms to wall off these defensive players, it's embarrassing them, and you're literally hitting them with the uppercut. He said, if you want to stay in this league and stay healthy and not have guys take career injury shots at you, you need to stop doing that. And when he told me that, I stopped doing it. I never did it again until that Super Bowl. Wow. And because when I was doing it at Miami, that I would wind up and you can see the guy's eyes try to figure out, uh uh-oh, I'm, this dude about to hit me with this. Do I go down low? They, they second guess how they want to hit me. And that's the only reason why I was doing it because it made you think about how you're going to tackle me. Had Canadians Bennett wasn't chasing me from behind, I would have kept going because Kelso wasn't making the tackle. I was going <laughs> through him. But his eyes lit up when I wind up. He wouldn't worry about tackling me. He was worried about how to duck this forearm. And I knew that would do that because I had done it way back in the past. That's amazing. Wow, that's a great story. So yeah. you guys have the 20 to 19 lead. Bills have the frantic last drive. They line up for the 47-yard field goal. Scott Norwood lines up and pushes it wide right. From your vantage point on the sideline, do you think that it's good or do you know that it's no good and you guys have won? Get another insight. During pregame, Norwood was hooking everything left. Every kick he made during pregame was hooked left. Mm. So when the game came down to that kick, he knew that if he started right, it was going to draw back in because he had been hooking them that way. From my vantage point, which was toward the end of the sideline, closer to the locker room, because had they made it, I was not going to be a good sport. I was going in, forget that shaking hand and all that crap. I was done. Now. <laughs> What was unique was Disney that Saturday had interviewed five players that they felt could be impact players that could also be MVP. Hostetler, Lawrence, Leonard Marshall, myself, and Banks. On Buffalo side, it was Andre Reed, Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, uh, Bruce Smith, and Kanish Bennett were the five players they had picked on Saturday. They gave us all an opportunity to say, I'm going to Disney or I dedicate the win to the truth. I said, since it was the Gulf War, I said, I happen to be MVP. I want to say, dedicate the win to the troops. I don't know if I was the only one that thought of that, but I know I'm the only one in the history of Super Bowl that ever been played. I'm the only one that never said going to Disney. I'm the only one that said that. Wow. Now, when I'm sitting there looking at the field goal, I didn't look at no wood. I was looking at the Bill sideline. Andre Reed, Mar Levy, and James Lofton were grabbing hands. And when that kick went up, their hands started up in the air as to show a victory motion. And then I just saw them drop loose, and I turned – and I saw the ball stay right. And at that point in time, Disney was running behind me saying, dedicate this win to the truth. Dedicate this win to the truth. And I kept going, what? And then I thought about what they had said. So I started saying it. And we had one more play to go because there was still time on the clock. I had no idea 
that I was the Super Bowl MVP. I thought I was Disney MVP <laughs> until I got into the locker room and Lewis Tillman told me I was the MVP of the Super Bowl. And Bill Parcells came over to me, gave me a big hug, and said, congratulations, you're the MVP of the Super Bowl. Man, what a storybook ending to a long saga for you to have yeah. gone through what you did, shut out of the team facility, didn't know if you were going to have a job, getting the veterans minimum, last player on the depth chart to now Super Bowl MVP, and you do it in the state of Florida as you predicted. That must have been an overwhelming moment after the game. How did that all feel? Oh, God, it was incredible. It was an incredible feeling. And you know what? I, I left something out that meant a lot to me, and I'm going to tell you what it was. When I got traded in 86 and we won the Super Bowl, and, you know, media day, everybody's sitting down on the field with, with tables in front of them, uh, stands in front of them, and everybody was getting interviewed. I was sitting high up in the stands, so far up there. I was looking down, and I was just saying to myself, one day, this going to be me. Everybody going to want to talk to me. I, I said it to myself literally almost in tears because nobody wanted to talk to me. I was not a conversation piece. And I remember one of the news guys started coming up the steps, and he got three-quarters of the way, and he looked and saw how far it was, and he just waved and turned around and went back down. It's like it was too far for him. And I said, one day, they're all going to want to talk to me. And when we had media day in Subo 25, I told all of the reporters, I said, you guys don't remember, but in 86, y'all was knee deep with Lawrence, knee deep with, with Sims, knee deep with Bavaro, knee deep with Joe Mars, knee deep with Harry Carson. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And I said, now look at you. Super Bowl 25, we're getting ready to play the biggest game of my career. And all you guys want to talk to me. How sweet it is. And I remember one of the reporters said, you're right, OJ. We sh probably should have paid more attention to you. He said, but you got to remember, you got traded and you ain't done none yet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we didn't want to talk to you. And that shit me up right then and there. I said, you got that on me. What's your question, guys? Let's go. <laughs> What sweet vindication for you. It just must have been an amazing, you know, capper to your career. You played two more seasons for the Giants and retire after the 1992 campaign. Mm -hmm. And you finished your career with more than 10,000 yards. And I'm going to list off a couple of players that have fewer yards than you do that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Please Great. tell me who they are because I'm trying to figure out why in the world am I not there? What did they do differently? Than what I've done, other than maybe play in a generation where the people who know about my career are passed away, those people, and the new people saw these young guys play and figure they don't even know about me. So go ahead. I'd like to know who they are. So there's John Henry Johnson who played far before you, Leroy Kelly as well. And then we get into yeah. a more modern era with you and your contemporaries. Larry Zonka was before you, but Zonka, of course, was a big part of the Dolphins' uh, 72 team. Jim Taylor was a big part of the famed Packers sweep and the Vince Lombardi teams. 
Earl mm-hmm. Campbell, who obviously was one of the great running backs of the 1980s as well, are all in the Pro Football Hall of Fame alongside Terrell Davis, whose career was cut short by injury. But all of them have fewer yards than you do, and they are all in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I know that... And, and, and less touchdowns, too. And less touchdowns. And fewer touchdowns. You've been an all-pro. You were a pro bowler. You were a rookie of the year. You were a Super Bowl MVP. You have more yards than those other Hall of Famers. You cracked the mystical 10,000-yard club. So how disappointed are you that you haven't been called for the Hall of Fame yet? Uh, you know what? Um, when you have, going back about 10, 15 years ago, that was a push for me to get in the Hall of Fame. When I retired, I was the eighth leading rusher in the history of the NFL. Eighth leading rusher when I retired in 92. Bill Parcells, Joe Gibbs, Coach Belichick, Dick Vermeil, and the great Larry Holmes all wrote recommendation letters to the Hall of Fame about having me be considered. Those people, other than Larry Holmes, who was just a fan of football and was a fan who saw me play and appreciate my work, but them coaches I played against, and they sent letters on my behalf asking the Hall of Fame I should be submitted, and they didn't do it. I don't know why they didn't take those Hall of Fame coaches' word and players who played against me who has definitely brought my name up quite a few times about my induction. I don't know what the criteria is. I have no idea how they base who they bring in because it can't be about statistics and it can't be about character. I got one of the great characters now. I just been <laughs> inducted. I just been inducted into the New York Giants ring of honor. I kept saying, if I can make the ring of honor on the wall of the New York Giant, there's no way in the world I shouldn't make the hall in Canton, Ohio. So from the wall to the hall should be my march. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, I believe that you're a pro football Hall of Famer for all the reasons that I just mentioned. Your resume stands alone and it doesn't need any waxing from me. But I will also tell you, I, I hold out hope for you. And I think you should as well, because I just spoke to Joe Klecko. Klecko yep. had a career in the 70s and early 80s. He retired before you did. He spent years waiting to see if you would ever get in. And I said, did you ever lose faith? He said, no, I never lost faith. I always believed that it could happen. Here I am. I have a feeling that ultimately the same thing will happen to you. It's going to be a longer wait than you wanted. But I feel like if Klecko got in, then there is a sense of history with the guys of your generation still that there's people in there battling for you. So I want you to keep the hope because Klecko got in. Let me tell you something. I was with Klecko out in Super Bowl, uh, this past Super Bowl, and uh, he and I were doing autograph signing, and I had not known he had made the Hall of Fame until one of the guys was telling me and I was signing because they said, you know, Joe Klecko, and I said, yeah, I got to go say hello to him. He said, you might want to congratulate him. I said, Congrat- what happened? He said he made the Hall of Fame. I jumped up from my seat, went over there, gave him a big hug and said, Joe, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy. He said, I know, OJ. He said, I I, I can't believe it. You know, he said, uh, I'm here, man. I said, Joe. I said, Joe, do me a favor. I don't know who, who runs it. But while, <laughs> while you in there, please tell him you got a friend 
back in New Jersey that would love to get a phone call about coming to the Hall of Fame and being a part of it. I went there to see Harry get inducted. I think I saw Lawrence get inducted. And I made a promise to myself that I'll, I will not go back again until it was my time. I have not been back. You know, I just said I won't go back until it's my time. So maybe, you know, why I am above ground. Like, you know, people want to give you roses when you pass. You know, I'm one of those players like, give me my roses while I'm above ground. Give me my credibility while I'm up sound mind and body can enjoy with my family and friends. You know, I don't want to be one of those players that they say, man, you know what? Had he been alive, he would really appreciate this. I want to enjoy that. I want to be one of those players that enjoy it. I don't know how long we all got on this earth. You know, guys my age are falling all the time. Guys a little ahead of me going. You just don't know when. And everybody want to give you flowers when, you, when you're gone. But give me my flowers while I'm above ground. And Hall of Fame, give me my nominee while I'm above ground. I can appreciate it. That's all I ask for. I am going to push your cause because I believe you're a pro football Hall of Famer. I want you to keep the faith because I, I believe that it's going to happen and you will be recognized. Thank you. I got to tell you, OJ, this from the bottom of my heart, I couldn't be more thankful. I absolutely loved watching you play. You've been so gracious with your time before on my show. And this means a great deal that you took so much time to, to talk about your career with me. So thank you so much. And uh, we'll keep politicking for you, buddy. Don't, don't you worry. The, the battle ain't over in Canton, okay? <laughs> well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you giving me a platform to vent, you know. Uh, you know, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter at all. I'm not bitter. I'm, I'm just a little surprised, but I'm not bitter. I do understand. And good thing comes to those who wait. So you know what? Everything that happened for me, it happens when you least expect it. You know, and I go all the way back to when I was playing Little League football, we didn't have equipment because we just couldn't afford it. We were using high school equipment, big helmets, big shoulder pads. Okay. Time I graduate from there, they get brand new equipment. I go to high school. We never a winning program. We fought like heck. Never did win. We leave, we get good equipment. I go to to Miami thinking that I'm 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 gonna be a part of a winning school and one day be able to, you know, play professional football. We don't win anything. The first three years of my career, the second year we become a winner. I go to the pros. I go to the pros thinking that one day I'll get a chance to play in the Super Bowl. Seven years go by. I give up that thought of playing in the Super Bowl and be the all-time leading rusher in the history of the NFL. That was my goal when I realized that we weren't going to beat anybody and make the playoffs and go to the Super Bowl. So my focus was to become that player. But behold, like you said, you never know. I got a chance to fulfill one of my dreams, which is to play in the Super Bowl, state of Florida, be MVP. Now I got a chance to maybe fill the other one. So I'm I'm awake. I'm gonna be patient. Got no choice but to be patient. <laughs> and we'll see if they can get it right. We'll see if can somehow they figure it out that uh, those those seven or eight players ahead of me, you know, they are good ball player by far. I'll take nothing away from them. But if you're going off statistics, I should be in there. Yeah, you're in that class. Yep, you're in that class of greatness, no yeah. doubt about it. Otis Anderson joining us here on New York Accent. OJ, you're the best. Thank you again. I appreciate it. And if, if I get in, please, that do this interview again. Okay. <laughs> I, I want you. I want you to say 
<laughs> Started off by saying, I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. That, that's a problem. All right, All right man. Thank Thanks you. so much. All right, bye-bye. Man, what a cool conversation with OJ. I thought I had heard all of the stories about the 1990 Giants, but there's some in there that even I hadn't heard before. And man, I, I love that story about he was shut out of the Giants facility. They didn't really even invite him there. He wasn't on the security list and they do- dropped him to the bottom of the depth chart, 87, 88, and that he just kept grinding to find a role to hang on with the team and he was watching games at Hoolahan's down the road from the Meadowlands with fans and he was on the team? That's just incredible. So I asked you guys for emails last week and I had mentioned that we were going to have OJ on my Saturday WFAN show. So I got some emails about that. And this one is from Scott in Nutley, New Jersey. You can email us nyaccentpod.com at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. And Scott says, hey, DA, I heard you mention you were going to have O.J. Anderson on episode two. What do you think is the defining play of the 1990 Giants? To me, you go to the NFC Championship game, and it's this epic brawl between them and the 49ers. I mean, San Francisco is the team of the decade, They're coming off back-to-back championships in 88 and 89. And Montana is still at the height of his powers. He's coming off these incredible performances in NFL MVP in 89. And the play that defines everything for me is the Leonard Marshall hit on Montana. Because on the play, Marshall is blocked down on the far side. He is crawling on all fours. He finally gets his head of steam and pow! Drills Montana in the back, finishing Montana's career as a 49er and flipping that entire game around. They've got to bring in Steve Young. It's before Steve Young is Steve Young as a a perennial pro bowler and a future Hall of Famer. And the Niners are stunned. They are stunned. And it opens up the door for the Giants to win that football game. And it's this... Giants seemed down to that season. They they weren't the power team that the Niners were, and yet they just defied the odds and kept crawling on all fours and would just never say die. It's an incredible team. It's one of the most incredible championship teams, I think, in New York sports history because as good as they were, they defied the odds. A backup quarterback in Haas, old OJs, a backup running back to Rodney Hampton, beating the three-peat uh, Niners knocking out Montana, beating the Bills as huge underdogs. I mean, they did it all that season and hoisted the Vince Lombardi trophy. Hey, send me emails. nyaccentpod at gmail.com. nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Questions or comments, everything is welcome. Hopefully you enjoyed the first two episodes of New York Accent. You can also catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things. You can pop up the free Odyssey app to listen to me there for Saturday afternoons, 1 until 3 o'clock on WFAN in New York. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Tuesday with with a fresh episode. This is New York Accent, an original Odyssey podcast.